Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. Across the series, we explore the emerging trends in tech and meet key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. In this episode, ASM Technologies' Ian Tomkinson and Stephen Dale talk through tech innovation and trends in the global health education sector with Richard Price. Richard is a global health education technology advisor, passionate about helping global health education through research and development of new technologies, and has worked with governments in Mexico, Malaysia, Thailand, the Philippines and Southeast Asia. Over the next 30 minutes, Richard talks through his passion for emerging technologies in his sector, how the healthcare sector should be using tech going forward, and how tech can be deployed at speed to help humanitarian organizations. All of that to come on ASM Connected. Welcome back to the ASM Connected podcast. I'm Stephen Dale, and I'm joined, as usual, by my colleague, Ian Tomkinson. Today, we're going to be talking to Richard Price, Welcome to the podcast today, Richard. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you, Steve, and thank you, Ian. So we've got a bit of a plan, Richard, to try and keep us on track. For us, this podcast, this series, we're talking about emerging technology, innovation, and agility. But obviously, with you on board today, our focus is going to be on that cross-section between education, health, and technology. This is right up my street, but I, I warn you now, I'm going to be going off on a tangent. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you're in good company then. Um, I suppose one of the things that we, uh, we, we tend to do is a bit of a, uh, a warm up question and um, to get us all sort of, uh, thinking, uh, uh, laterally. And I suppose the one question from me is like, like most of us in technology or involved in the tech sector in one way or another, most of us didn't set out to be in the tech sector and it wasn't our original chosen career path. Can you share some background on how you got into working into the tech sector and healthcare space? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's fair to say there wasn't a very traditional path. Um, my undergraduate degree is actually in marine biology. So that's what I was working for the first couple of years of my career. And I, and I thought that was fairly unique in the ed tech sector, but actually I found somebody else recently who was working on a very similar project to me at around that same time. So uh, it just goes to show that there's, there's a lot of people working in the sector. So I was actually looking at uh, marine anti-fouling paints and how they impact on food chains and ecosystems within the, the marine environment and uh, causing sex changes in dog whelps, these little uh, marine snails. And I, I spent, you might have to bleep this bit, but I spent much of my, my day measuring penises of dog whelps to, to try and evidence what was going on. So very different from what I'm working in now, of course. Um, I took a career in voluntary sector after that, and then of course started working in healthcare in the NHS, doing stuff with data analytics. Because I'd always had an interest in IT, I guess, even prior to that. Kind of realised by that point in my career, marine biology probably wasn't for me. I like talking too much. I like talking to people too much. Um, and sitting and looking down a microscope all day really wasn't for me. So, like I say, looking at sort of more of the IT healthcare role, worked in an IT role and then sort of moved into the edtech space because it was something that interested me. Edtech means educational technology. And I've been doing that for the last 15 or so years. And I formalized that obviously through education as well. So took an MSc um, in, the, in this space as well to sort of validate those, those sort of credentials and things like that. And from about 2018, roughly, I was working as a national ed tech advisor to the NHS, an organization called Health Education England, which is the, the bit of the NHS that's responsible for all the education training of all the doctors, nurses, paramedics, everybody that works in healthcare in the UK. So 1.2, 1.3 million people, something like that. 
and we work with the technology enhanced learning team that then supports all of those those individuals looking at all of the different touch points where somebody might have an opportunity to use tech in their their education and how we can support them with that. But since January this year, the early part of this year, I was doing some work in this space before, but I'm now working in global health, specialising in ed tech. Um, so working with WHO, as you mentioned, UNESCO, lots of governments around the world that we're doing work with. So we're currently exporting projects in India, Uganda, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and all of these amazing countries that are doing some really fabulous stuff with education and technology. And um, it's, it's a huge privilege to be working in this space. And there are days I have to pinch myself when you say you're working for the WHO, it's kind of one of those organizations that just doesn't feel real sometimes. And sometimes you just have to pinch yourself and go, actually, I really am working with this organization. We're making a huge difference in the world and making the lives of doctors, nurses, clinicians, and all of the amazing people that work in healthcare better. Yeah, great. No, that's a, definitely a, a fantastic journey. And uh, I like the fact that, you know, you, you've sort of uh, dedicated your career to using technology and education for, for the benefit of, of humans, really. And that, that, that's something that's great to see. I enjoyed getting into tech because it allowed me to travel. I think I was more interested in that, but uh, we've not done a great deal of that lately. Um, being part of the World Health Organization, hopefully you you will get that opportunity. Well, I hope so. Like I say, it's not directly working for the WHO, but uh, certainly doing a lot of work with them and uh, I'm sure there'll be opportunities. But like everybody, I, I guess I've not traveled at all over the last two years with the, with the pandemic. So just uh, jumping back into the advisory role that you did with the NHS, obviously that's sort of really prestigious and keen to dig beneath the surface of, uh, of what conversations you had with them. But you've done some work around immersive technologies, which have really exploded onto the scene over the last few years. And I believe that was in relation to the Nightingale Field Hospitals. Now I'm just wanting to know from you, was was it a bit of scrambling around in the deep end to sort of put that technology in place out of necessity or, or was, was there time to plan it and was there any learning taken from that that's being still used now or that we're going to find useful going forwards? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there was an element of that because I don't think anybody knew what was happening with COVID-19. It was a novel coronavirus, as it was called at the time, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know the impact it was having. All we knew is that it was causing these debilitating illnesses for people. And we needed to rapidly upskill our workforce to be able to support patients that were struggling to breathe. And unfortunately, many of them were dying because there was no vaccine in sight then. I, I don't think it had even been genome sequenced at that point. So we, we really were dealing with something that was complete unknown. And there was a lot of fear, a lot of panic across not just sort of health systems, also in government, things like that as well. So it was a real challenge to try and address that. And I'm really not detracting away from the incredible work that our doctors, our nurses, our healthcare professionals did, that it's the biggest privilege in my life to be able to work with people like that. They really are making a huge difference. But in our own way, we started to make a bit of a difference. And just thinking about sort of the broader range of technology before we spoke specifically on the immersive tech, we've been doing a lot of stuff with e-learning. And I think it's important to reflect a little bit on that. So through the eLearn for Healthcare platform in the UK, we provide probably one of, the, I, I dare say, one of the largest LMSs in the world. Um, we have about two and a half million registered users on that. And for the coronavirus content alone, we had somewhere in the region of 30 million content launches in six months or a year. Um, it was just crazy the sort of way that people were uptaking this because, like I say, nobody knew what to expect from this this novel virus, this novel this novel way of having to treat patients and, and deal with the consequences of that. So, like I say, we had a huge investment in this 
this LMS platform to try and support people with that. We built the COVID-19 response in, I think it was about six days. So we were working evenings and weekends to try and pull this off, but curating lots of our existing content and pulling all that into a space where everybody working in healthcare could access that. And we we actually made that available to the entire world for free. Um, we made a sort of conscious choice at that point to make this available because, again, we know countries, particularly sort of India, for example, were really struggling at that time. And we wanted to help as many people around the world as we could with this with this novel virus and how to respond to that. So, uh, like I say, immersive tech was one of the tools in our armory, but e-learning very much was one of the, the primary ones as well. And we worked with a lot of the non-government organisations, the NGOs, the World Health Organisation and others to, to support with their response to that as well. But in terms of what we did at the Nightingale Hospital, the biggest one was obviously the one at Excel in Docklands in London. And I always I always think about the fact that I used to go to the Learning Technologies Conference there, which is the, the big industry event in the UK for, for people like myself. And I was in the sort of spring of that year, I'd been drinking coffee with people in, in that space. And then all of a sudden, I was watching photos on the news of this space where we'd been having so these amazing conversations about the technology and things like that being turned into probably one of the largest field hospitals in the world. So, I mean, it's pretty galling, heartbreaking when you see that kind of thing happening. But like I say, we were really keen that we could try and support the people that were going to be working there. And I guess immersive tech was kind of one of the, one of the technologies that really sort of came to the forefront at that point. So we've been dabbling with the technology before. And I say dabbling in the sort of loosest sense of the word. We, we, we'd had some sort of formal evaluations of the technology. We'd um, started looking at 360 content and things like that. I guess the pandemic gave us the impetus to try and take this forward because everybody was starting to work remotely at that point. So we actually took over the O2 arena um, and that became our sort of field training center for the, for the year that the, the Nightingale Hospital was open. And as part of that, we were looking at how we could use immersive technology to put people in the position of being able to uh, work with patients that had this novel coronavirus. We didn't know how it was going to pan out and that training, a lot of it was done remotely. So we started looking at, I guess, how we could use the technology. So virtual reality, I would say, was less well used probably than maybe some of the mixed reality devices like Microsoft HoloLens and things like that. So we bought a number of these devices and we were using them essentially to do what we'd call a virtual teaching ward round. So if you think about the way a, a, a clinician learns, they typically follow a, a more experienced clinician around and they can observe what they're doing when they're speaking to patients. We converted a lot of that to virtual experiences. So using the HoloLens, for example, to broadcast what the clinician was seeing back to a group of trainees that perhaps sat at home or somewhere in a COVID safe area um, so that they could then synchronously ask questions of the clinician so that they could get a feel for what kind of experiences they were going to encounter when they did go onto the ward. Um, we did a lot of 360 footage, for example, as well, to immerse people into the environment. So they could say, this is what it's going to look like. It's loud, it's noisy. I mean, if you've ever been to one of these big conferences, you know how noisy it is with just all the trade stands going on. But can you imagine how noisy it is when you've got thousands of ventilators running at the same time, beeping and making the sort of hissing noises and things like that in this big echoey space. It was a loud environment um, and really scary environment. So we tried to put people into that experience using VR 360 footage to let them get used to that environment before they, they actually got put into that environment. So again, just our, our small part, really, what we tried to do with that. Again, just thinking about some of the other use cases, we did some work with uh, a number of companies like GigXR, 
with Microsoft and, and with a number of other companies to try and capture what we call volumetric filming. So if you've never seen uh, a volumetric capture before, it looks a bit like, um, if you've ever seen the Crystal Dome at the end of the Crystal Maze, the TV show, it looks a bit like that. It's a big sort of geodome um, and with lots of cameras pointing inwards and you put an actor in the middle of that and you can record every angle of them. So you can record back, the front, underneath. Um, every angle and what that does, it captures all of that and processes that and puts that into, um, holographic image, a volumetric holographic image. And so again, we could use that on the Microsoft HoloLens to actually show people what a COVID-19 patient looks like. So, and, and the brilliant thing about it is it's kind of replacing what we would do with a normal sort of simulation environment. We can make that patient deteriorate or improve depending on what learning outcome we're trying to achieve. So again, like I say, all of these different technologies we were sort of dabbling with before, and now suddenly all of a sudden we're sort of being thrown into the deep end and saying, here's the money, get on with it sort of thing. How can this make a difference? And I guess always at the back of my mind was the educational outcome and how we make that clear as well, make that link back to the education so we're not just attracted by the, the shiny gadgets, for want of a better word. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting point. And uh, I, I suppose that ability to give people a glimpse of that environment before they step into it. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I kind of imagine that, that hospital environment being quite quiet and, uh, you know, quite serene, but obviously uh, it, far from it, um, from, from what you're telling me. But yeah, absolutely. What, what a great way to um, give people that sort of extra edge before they go into that environment and they, they go into something that they can expect rather than just being dropped in at the deep end. Um, that alone has got a, a value, I should imagine. Definitely. And that's something we've taken forward since that work. So I guess that initial investment, and if there is such a thing as a silver lining for something as horrific as a global pandemic, the silver lining really has been that we've found new ways of working uh, and new ways of teaching and new ways of training. So a lot more blended learning using, like I say, virtual teaching ward rounds. So we're finding lots of trusts, NHS trusts are using head mounted displays and things like that, body cams to be able to broadcast to trainees, clinical experiences and things like that. Because I think the big challenge we have now is obviously training recovery. So a lot of people that were trained to be nurses, trained to be doctors, had their training disrupted. So how do you make that up to them by giving them those clinical experiences so that they're used to, they've seen all of the things that they potentially could see in a, in a, a real world when they start working in healthcare and working in the NHS. And like I say, VR and XR technologies really are paving the way for that to happen by creating these immersive experiences. So it has changed the way that we deliver education and, and they would say in a positive way. For our previous guests we've had on the podcast series, we've heard that obviously clinicians that don't learn and embrace these new technologies will eventually get left behind, which is, um, I suppose, a uh, part and parcel of how we evolve moving forward. In terms of those technologies, and, and you've mentioned VR, XR, what technologies should the healthcare sector look to invest time and education in today? Everyone talked about AI as a game changer in a lot of industries these days. What are the game changers you know, that, that are out there today? Yeah, I, I, I completely get what you're saying. And I'm not sure I necessarily say that clinicians would get left behind if they don't embrace technology, but. What we are finding is that those that don't have that natural aptitude towards using technology are starting to struggle. Um, and that was highlighted in the Topol review, which was our, our sort of flagship review from 2019. We looked at what future of healthcare might look like in five years time, in 10 years time, in 20 years time. And obviously underpinning all of that 
those changes in genomic medicine, in robotic surgery and things like that. All of that, that exciting stuff that's coming, actually it's, it's the people that are the most important bit. It's the, the workforce that we need to support with that. So a lot of work we're doing at the moment is perhaps the sort of groundwork for a lot of these technologies that are coming like AI. So things like digital capabilities, digital literacy, and making sure that our workforce are equipped to deal with those things. So, I mean, just a really sort of example from my own life, a friend of ours has just had a, a baby. When she was having um, her checks with the, the midwife, she was wearing her Apple watch and it was sending data on her pulse and her blood pressure and things back. But the, the nurse, the midwife that was working with her didn't necessarily understand all of the data that was coming out of that Apple watch. So and didn't trust the technology. So there's an element of sort of bringing the workforce on a journey to be able to say, actually, a lot of these wearable devices are pretty good and they're going to give you a similar kind of indication of what a more traditional clinical intervention might look like where you're taking somebody's blood pressure um, manually or something like that. So it's looking at the, how the technology can support the workforce and take them on that journey and, and making sure that they're confident and competent in using this technology so that they can take this forward. So I guess the second part of your question is thinking about that is sort of the AI side of things. I, th I think there's so much hype around AI. It keeps coming up in all the conversations we have, but actually when you pair it back, what you're actually doing is we're trying to deliver education in better ways. So there will be some AI that we can use to personalize educational interventions. So we talk about learning pathways, for example. So if we were all working in the same medical profession, the chances are we would all go down different pathways because the AI or machine learning would determine actually that I'm perhaps weaker in some areas than, than you are and vice versa. So we, we look into machine learning to be able to personalize those learning journeys and things like that. So I, I think that will be a, a significant change in terms of, of what the future education might look like, that more personalized, more tailored learning interventions. And I think the other thing that we can't really ignore at the moment is the metaverse. So we know that Facebook have, have rebranded themselves and arguably some of that possibly was a, a bit of a publicity stunt rather than anything else. But actually what they're talking about is this sort of future hybrid working where you are going to have augmented reality goggles, uh, for want of a better word. So maybe something like Google Glass or something like that that you're wearing that gives you additional information on top of the real world. So if you were looking at a patient, it might be bring up their x-rays or it might bring up their vital signs or something like that overlaid on top of their, on top of the real world. So you're going to start seeing this sort of blend between the real world and the, the virtual world. And I don't think we can ignore that and how that's going to look in terms of the metaverse and things like that. I mean, there's some, some interesting studies that one of my colleagues did. Um, things like Google Glass are quite elegant and quite discreet. And patients actually didn't mind when the clinician was wearing those and being able to see those headsets and things. When somebody was wearing a, a a HoloLens, for example, you can't really ignore somebody wearing those. They, they make you look like a, a giant bumblebee or a giant fly with the, the visor on the top. So you can't really ignore somebody wearing those. So it becomes a bit of a barrier between you and the patient. So I think the technology has a long way to go in terms of sort of breaking down those barriers if patients are going to accept their doctor, their nurse wearing something like that that's bringing the metaverse into their work environment. So yeah, there's some big changes coming. Yeah, we, we have seen, uh, I suppose, elements of that creeping into, I suppose, industry and other sectors. And uh, we've been working with a vendor for a while now that uh, has a glass type headset that you can put on. It's not quite as cumbersome and uh, it's brilliant for training purposes because you can literally uh, scan a QR code. So if you're uh, an electrician working on a complex circuit diagram, 
if there's a QR code in there, it can actually present the wiring diagram of how it should be in front of you. And it's kind of in terms of training. And even then, if you're struggling, you've actually got a camera and a microphone and somebody at a control center on the other side of the world can actually see what you're working on and they can talk you through it. Yeah, I'm a bit obsessed right, by that device sort or of airline technology. And that's kind of one of the things that really excites me. So I think it was the Rolls Royce, if I recall correctly, bought a load of these HoloLenses for their, their remote engine engineers. Uh, so they can be sat in an airfield in Dubai and somebody back in Derby can be talking them through how to change a fan blade or something like that. And I just imagine what we could do in healthcare with that. I think that's really exciting. Ab- absolutely. Yeah, you can see uh, surgeons all over the world collaborating on a complex case, which is um, which is where that for education and but for healthcare as well, getting the best care and you possibly can for that individual case. And it comes down to that personalization as well of, of healthcare, because there is a lot of talk about personalization of healthcare, isn't there, currently? Yeah, absolutely. And I think thinking about the sort of genomic medicine, that's a really exciting area for me. So you've got the human genome has obviously been sequenced, as we all know, um, the 100,000 genome project. Well, since that was done, the process, the speed of genome sequencing has increased dramatically. We can do thousands of people in a day now, uh, whereas before it was sort of the tens or, or maybe one or two people in, in, in a month we were looking at. So when you start to think about that, actually, you can have a, a finger prick in the morning. By the afternoon, you've got your genome sequenced and we can go, okay, we can personalize the medicine that we give to you now. And I think that for me is really exciting in terms of what we can do. Genome sequencing has a huge sort of impact in, in terms of, uh, of what it is. We, we find a lot of medicines are tested on male mice in the lab rather than female mice. So actually, um, there's a lot of evidence suggests that there's almost this sexual bias within, um, uh, within medicine and within drugs and things like that. So actually what we can do with genome sequencing is start looking at the impact on drugs on different people and different sexes and things like that, and look at how we can personalize and tailor those, those experiences that those drugs, those interventions, those clinical interventions. And when we think about that in an educational context, well, you, again, you've got this sort of AI space where we can start looking at this personalized learning, but I like to think about the idea of digital twins, for example, in education. So you, you and I potentially have a, a digital twin and the army do a lot of this, the RAF do a lot of this. I'm very fortunate to go to RAF Wardington a couple of years ago, and they were doing some stuff with their flight simulators where they can in real time, create a digital twin of you and look at which areas you're likely to fail in as a pilot. So you can sit in the flight simulator and it'll tailor the experience, make it harder or more or easier, depending on which areas it thinks you're struggling in. So if it thinks you're struggling with ground surface warfare, well, it'll throw more of that at you so that you can get used to that experience in the simulation environment. And again, look at how we can do that in healthcare. So if you, if you think about, we do a lot of work with mannequins, for example, um, so we can create a, a birthing simulator, for example, we can make that scenario easier or more difficult depending on how the team or the individual are working within that environment. And again, that's all sort of driven by machine learning AI. Yeah, and I suppose there's a bit of uh, IoT coming to there with lots of sensors on various different things as well. Oh, definitely, yeah. And I suppose that moves me on to, uh, I suppose, uh, we've talked about some of the cool technologies. You only have to sort of uh, go onto any social media platform these days, and there's a new cool technology out and about. But I suppose uh, some technologies have that wow experience, and, you know, that they... Uh, you know, you look at it and you think that, that's really cool, but I suppose little practicality in the real world 
can you provide any examples of an emerging tech that, that you've had experience of that's really making a difference in learning and healthcare that perhaps, uh, you know, has that cool feel as well? Or Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to, to answer that because I think part of my job really is looking beyond the, the shiny gadgets and seeing how we can apply that in an educational context. And I guess there's the part of me that loves the tech. There's a really cool gadget in the movie called Catwalks. The, if you've ever seen the movie Ready Player One, an omnidirectional treadmill that works exactly the same as in that movie. It's really cool, but actually in terms of a sort of healthcare educational context, I'm really struggling to find a way that we could potentially use that so that we get to sight of that kind of technology all the time and we have to make a decision on whether it's appropriate to use or not, I guess. And that that's the reality. Everything that we do has to be linked back to the educational outcome. If we're spending money on something, taxpayers' money essentially, or how can we justify that and say that this is actually making a difference to the way that we're delivering education and training? Is that improving the way that we train doctors, we train nurses, we train paramedics or, or other healthcare professionals? And that's what we always try and think back to. So a lot of the role is thinking beyond the, the, the tech, but thinking about how this is actually going to impact the way that we deliver the education. Yeah, I, I can often be uh, cynical myself, Richard, about some of the technology that's coming down the line. And we've some, seen some great stuff that just didn't have those practical use cases uh, that suddenly falls by the wayside. I think that's a an ever-moving journey. But a theme, it's already coming across in the conversation with you today that those educational outcomes are, are really what the focus is, is all about. It's easy to get carried away. But just changing the subject slightly, I'm interested in this work that you're doing on a sort of more global level and just wondering how receptive some of the, the governments in economies like places like Uganda and Mexico, where you've had some experience, how receptive are they to emerging technologies? Because in some sectors, we've seen those kind of um, regions actually be more advanced than we are. And in other areas, they're possibly behind. So, you know, keen to see what your experience is. Yeah, absolutely. So like I say, a lot of the work I've started doing is around uh, emerging economies. And I think there's a bit of a perception, possibly rather unfairly, that actually there's very little going on in these countries. But actually, like you say, India in particular, I think a lot of the stuff they're, they're thinking, a lot of the stuff they're doing with technology is way ahead of what we're doing in, in Europe and in the UK. So we need to be really mindful of, of that and, and not sort of treat countries that are in the sort of lower middle income bracket as the sort of poor relations because they're really not. And that's my experience. I mean, I would say there's very little published evidence around this. Well, in fact, I would say there's no published evidence on this. There's even very little informal evidence. If you look on Twitter and things like that, you're not going to find examples of EdTech because it just doesn't come up. So I guess a little plug, I suppose, for one of my passion projects that I'm working on behind the scenes at the moment, just in my spare time. Is a wiki that I'm starting to create, edtech.wiki, and that's just building the evidence base around what is going on in, in lower and middle income countries. Like I say, the work we're doing in Uganda, for example, it's around major trauma. So I think, again, there's a perception in, in Europe, in North America, that countries are starting to emerge from what we call communicable diseases, things like uh, malaria and things like that, and are moving now into this sort of non-communicable disease space. So these are the lifestyle diseases that we all suffer from, smoking, drinking, being overweight, not doing enough exercise, those kind of things, and, and all of the diseases that come with those, like diabetes and things. But the reality is the single biggest killer in sub-Saharan African countries is major trauma. So things like road traffic accidents and things like that. So the work we're doing in Uganda is looking at how we can support clinicians working in countries in sub-Saharan Africa 
using virtual reality to put them into those experiences, to train them up um, and support them with dealing with road traffic collisions and things like that so that we can try to save some more lives. So it's really quite fundamental, some of the stuff that, that we're doing. And like I say, we have the luxury in the UK in particular, being able to afford to buy lots of HoloLenses or lots of HTC Vive headsets or something like that. Countries like Uganda don't necessarily have that budget, but actually they're really smart at using the tech more wisely. So looking at sort of using the mobile phones and things, that, which are ubiquitous, everybody has one of those in their pocket, using those to deliver the education instead. In Mexico, a lot of the stuff we've done is around e-learning. And again, it's sort of looking at community health volunteers. So how do we upskill people that work in communities that potentially don't have the same level of formal training as we have here in the UK? And how can we can we support those with with using e-learning, things like that? And again, a lot of this is not particularly novel technology, not particularly sophisticated technology, but it's making a real difference. And, and I think for me, that's really exciting. And the, the principles, obviously, and the outcomes that you're looking for remain the same. So it might be that delivery mechanism and the scenario that's different, but the, the intention's the same. That seems to be clear. And what about the, uh, so the governments there? Are they, are they supporting it or, or do you find that a bit of a barrier? No, I, it generally we're pushing on an open door, but I think it's important to, to highlight this is not sort of UK coming in and telling people what to do. These are very much co-designed solutions. So anything we do needs to be specific to the country. So something that works in a hospital in London probably isn't going to work necessarily in a hospital in, in Kampala or somewhere like that. Everything we do is always looking at co-design and making sure that whatever solution we support with is actually going to be used and is going to be sustainable and things like that. And also, I think I'm really keen that it's more of a knowledge exchange as well. So everything we're doing is, is, is looking at how we can learn in the UK to improve. The, the NHS has historically been quite inward looking. Um, and actually, I think we've got a lot to learn from other health systems in terms of their, their IT systems, in terms of their education technologies and things like that. So a lot of the work we're doing is, is sort of feeding that back into the system and learning from other healthcare systems as well, so that we can improve what we're doing here in the UK. Yeah, I think, I, I suppose that, I think we've all seen or heard, um, if you go to uh, some of the countries that we, we've just been discussing, that the broadband and the internet is faster, and that's because they missed out the whole sort of copper um, side of uh, technology and they've just gone straight to fiber. And, and I suppose, is that the kind of the case that they're just going straight to the new technology without missing all our legacy technology? I think that's true in middle income countries. So if you look to Southeast Asia, for example, Thailand, Malaysia, that is very much the case. What we're finding again in sub-Saharan Africa, I, did, I had a call with somebody in Kenya the other night. He couldn't afford to phone me because the data is just too expensive. So we had to schedule this call around when he was going to be in an internet cafe so that we could use WhatsApp to speak. Wow. And that's the reality, unfortunately, that the data is still really prohibitively expensive in some cases. So the work we're doing in Uganda, for example, is with a charity called Learn Appeal, who um, I'm a big fan of. They have a solution that's an internet in box solution. So essentially it's a Wi-Fi hotspot that you set up and everything, the learning management system, all of the content and everything stored on a, a micro SD card. So there's no cost to accessing the data. And like I say, that that's the reality in a lot of the countries that we work in, that they don't necessarily have access to the same IT infrastructure and, and data is really expensive. So we have to look for, for novel solutions to work with them and, and internet in a box seems to work reasonably well, actually. Mm, okay. 
and, and I suppose moving in in terms of that whole uh, being able to um, to provide solutions, we've obviously uh, been uh, aware of the news and, and we've seen the challenges posed that going on in in Ukraine at the moment, which is uh, a human uh, disaster waiting to happen at the moment, if not already happening. In those cases where, you know, we've talked about, I suppose, the Nightingale hospitals, you've talked about trauma in Africa, can emerging tech support and be rapidly deployed in these situations and circumstances of humanitarian disaster? And can that be done with speed and agility as we deploy it? Um, Yes and no, I think, is the answer to that. Aren't all questions like that going to be a bit ambiguous, I suppose, but... Yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of work with people on the ground uh, in Ukraine and in refugee camps around in Ukraine, in Poland, Romania, and Moldova, working with those the humanitarian organizations like Red Cross, like the WHO that are working in these spaces, trying to find out what the challenges are. So again, we're trying to deliver solutions that support people in these circumstances, but without dictating what it is that they need. So, I mean, we, we have a vast catalog of content we could donate but it's almost overwhelming and perhaps things like anesthesia for example aren't terribly relevant in the current context but something like maternity services would be because people are still having babies so we need to be able to support people that aren't necessarily medically trained to be able to help them deliver babies and things like that so one of the things that we're doing is is trying to create a, it's a similar response i guess to what we did with covid trying to rapidly mobilize the the expertise a platform to be able to deliver this training. I mean, there are challenges around language, around context and things like that. A lot of our learning is designed for high dependency clinical environments where we have all the latest equipment and things like that. If you work in a field hospital in Poland, probably don't necessarily have access to that same level of equipment um, just because these have been rapidly set up in an emergency. So we're having to contextualize and translate a lot of that content. But um, again, just looking at sort of mobilizing a, a, a response, a platform to support with that. And I guess the other thing is just another shout out to Learn Appeal. We're looking at trying to deploy some of their internet and bot solutions because anecdotally we know that Wi-Fi connectivity is non-existent. Again, I mean, without being too flippant, if you've ever been to Keep Cross Station at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon, trying to get a mobile signal in there is pretty much non-existent. If you can imagine millions of refugees trying to connect to the same mobile tower, they're just not going to get access to any internet connection so we're having to look at some non non-internet solutions like internet in a box and things like that so a lot of work going on like that at the moment to try and explore that and i guess hopefully in in a few months time hopefully we're, we're having a very different conversation it's about supporting that workforce that's returning to ukraine um to re- rebuild their health infrastructure and things like that and train their future doctors their future nurses and support with that as well yeah, and I suppose it's quite easy for uh, the uh, Russians to target the uh, the network and the the infrastructure in terms of that. And I, I believe um, Elon Musk has uh, been uh, playing around with Starlink and uh, has offered, if not set up, um, some network with that recently. Yeah, I'd heard a rumor about this, so um, I don't know quite how it works. But in terms of the satellites being positioned over Ukraine and I think you need a special box if I recall correctly to be able to connect connect so that may be, well be a solution that we want to explore as well with them yeah no no great and um, I suppose uh, thanks for your answers on that and uh, just to sort of uh, wind down a, a little bit uh, some I suppose easier going questions moving forward first one from myself being um, I suppose what's your favorite tech gadget 
Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I, I quite like simple things. I, I don't necessarily have the latest Apple watch or the latest sort of smartphone and things like that. I quite like tech that you can do stuff with. So things like Raspberry Pis and things, I think are really exciting. And um, in terms of t- teaching kids how to code and things like that. So I guess I like the simple things, but I mean, at the moment I, I'm slightly in love and slightly obsessed with my new Dell XPS laptop, but that's just a, that was a, a bit of an impulse purchase just before Christmas. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty good actually. Uh, yeah, I must admit, um, that's what I'm speaking to you on now. And, uh, it, it's probably traveled more miles than most people uh, over the years that I've had it. It's, <laughs> it. it's still going strong. So yeah, all good. Uh, and one for me, Richard, uh, if you were to sort of bet your house on one technology that you think is going to have the biggest impact in, in healthcare and, and learning sector, what would you go for? Can, can I pick more than one? Absolutely. Yeah, there's no rules really. Uh, this is a really boring answer, but I think this is really, for me, it's really exciting. And I think it's, it's not one technology, but kind of a set of technologies. So we talk a lot about learning ecosystems in healthcare. And I think the thing that's going to make the biggest difference for me is not the sort of the gadgets or the systems and things like that. It's about the APIs that connect all of those together. So when we talk about a learning ecosystem, we're sort of thinking about the sort of formal learning opportunities, the informal learning opportunities. So thinking about, I don't know, you listen to a podcast on the train or something, how do we capture the data that says you've listened to that and it's developed your learning and things like that. So I think that there are technology standards like XAPI, for example, the experience API that's being developed that can help us start moving towards that goal. But it's, um, like I say, I think that for me, the data is going to be the game changer with this. If we talk all the stuff we've talked about today on the podcast has been around artificial intelligence, for example, none of that's going to be possible unless you have data standards that are ready to start analyzing things like that. So yeah, I guess it's a set of technologies rather than one and it's probably a slightly boring answer, but I think for me, it's about getting the data infrastructure right, because without that, all of the, the exciting, cool stuff can't really happen. No, contrary. That's, that's a great answer. And like you say, you could have a whole conversation about that, but it, it follows on from what you've been saying, really, that, that ecosystem of collaboration, everybody working together, it goes along with the knowledge exchange that you've spoke about and obviously your, your edtech.wiki idea as well. So no, I, I think that's a, a great answer, bringing together everything that you've spoken about. So that's, that, that's been really great, Richard. I've, I've taken a lot from that. I love hearing about the Learn Appeal project as well. It, it reminds me of everyone talking about edge computing at the moment, and it's sort of a simplified way of, of creating that scenario. So I've taken a lot from it, Ian. Yeah, again, we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about data. I think we had a, a previous guest that, that we spoke to. We're talking about data science and uh, bringing a lot of data together, and these technologies are all uh, great, but you, you need the, the data to support it, and it's all about learning and, and moving forward. So, um, so yeah, no. Great to speak to you today, Richard. Thanks for joining the podcast and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies with guest Richard Price. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out the other episodes in the series featuring key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. And to find out more about the team at ASM Technologies or about anything discussed in the podcast, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.